Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our yearly tradition returns. We always end up covering the Ig Nobel Prizes, and that's what we're going to do today in part one of our Ig Nobel's 2018 series. That's right. We we generally pick up with the Ig Nobel's after October is finished because the Ig Nobel Prizes, uh, it, it tends to happen uh, right at the end of September. Terrible timing for us. Mm-hmm. Like we're just getting going for monster season, and then they throw these in our path. But I think it works out too because that for us because everybody can sort of read the initial press releases if you, you know if you if you're paying attention to the, to the science to science media you'll probably pick up on on what won and then you can eventually check back in with us and and hear us chat about it as well. Now the spirit of the Ig Nobel prizes if you're not familiar is they they I would say they follow the ethos of Professor Frank, right? Professor Frank, Professor Frank, he'll make you laugh, he'll make you think. Yeah, I, yeah, from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. Uh, I, I have to, we have to point out, as I think we usually do, Ig Nobel's, in some cases, they rub some people the wrong way. Some people don't see the humor in it. They maybe think that science should... Uh, should be a humorless affair and that we – or they think that, that in some cases uh, uh, the honorees are being made fun of. But I think for the, va- the vast majority of uh, individuals honored by the Ig Nobels, uh, they get it. They get the joke. They see the value of it and they realize that, yes, it's about having fun, but it's also uh, about honoring le- legitimate research as well. Yeah, I mean so these are real studies and it tends to focus on studies that are – funny when you first look at them, but they usually do reveal something at least pretty interesting. I mean, not always. Sometimes I look at them and, well, that's just pretty silly. But most of the time, there's at least some kind of really interesting tidbit in there. It either moves a field forward in some unexpected way or it gives you something to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do. They, they Professor Frank, Professor Frank. <laughs> so these have been awarded every year since 1991 by the Annals of Improbable Research, uh, um, a humorous uh, science uh, publication uh, that looks at various uh, studies and whatnot. Uh, the purpose of this award, according to the editors of Improbable Research, is to, quote, honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make and then make them think. Uh, furthermore, they stress that the 10 prizes aren't necessarily meant to pass judgment on the winners. Instead, uh, as they, they, they tend to emphasize that the prizes, uh, quote, celebrate the unusual, honor the imaginative, and spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology. And uh, by the way, the principal individual here is editor Mark Abrams, uh, uh, editor of the Annals of Improbable Research. Um, and and I, I, I think this is important too, the idea about spurring people's interest because a lot of times they do manage to highlight studies and papers and achievements in science that otherwise don't really rise, uh, you know, uh, up in the headlines. Mm-hmm. Or if they do, they only rise in the headlines because they're funny. And so one thing that we like to do when we look at the Ig Nobels is find, okay, are some, are there some of these that are actually kind of interesting when you start thinking about them? Do mm-hmm. they give you something to ponder? Yeah, and in all ways we ask the question – why is it important and why is it funny? Uh, the second question is generally uh, just very obvious mm-hmm. from the get-go. Except for the ones that aren't actually all that funny, which occasionally happens. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. But generally you're like, oh, yeah, I see why they honored that one. Uh, and in some cases, I think we've mentioned on the show, a new study will come along and we'll realize, oh, that one, that's going to get a Nick Nobel at some point. Yeah, any study about like butts or bending over or something, that, <laughs> that's just a— It's a, just a shoe in They just naturally— Ig Nobel bait. Yes, exactly. 
All right. So uh, now that we've established the Ig Nobel Prizes and what they are for anyone who wasn't familiar, uh, let's let's start jumping into some of the the winners for 2018. Okay. Now, obviously, we're not going to cover all of the winners in the same depth. Some we're going to engage with pretty deeply. Some we'll just sort of talk about pretty quickly. Uh, but I think the first one we should look at is maybe the, the 2018 Medicine Prize. Yes. So this one honors uh, Mark Mitchell and David uh, Wartinger uh, for uh, for using roller coaster rides to try to hasten the passage of kidney stones. Does this have practical utility? <laughs> well, yeah, just, just you wait. This was an October 2016 publication, and uh, Dave uh, Wartinger was the uh, individual who accepted uh, the honors at the ceremony. So... This one obviously links into an episode that you and I recorded years back, The Stone of Madness. Right. Which uh, – My name is Lubert Das. <laughs> because the episode dealt in part with uh, the passing of kidney stones and bladder stones. Mm-hmm. And w- wait, is it the Bosch painting? Is it Bosch? Yes, the removing of the Stone of Madness, not from the bowels but from uh, the, the cranium. Right. But the the idea is that there was like a removal of stone surgeries in the early modern period was – was kind of dicey. You're right. Uh, literally, like people were diced and sliced <laughs> and then died horrible deaths on the operating table. But there's this painting by Hieronymus Bosch that makes fun of this guy who's going to try to get a stone, an alleged stone cut out of his head. And he's like, please cut the stone, master. My name is Lubert Das. <laughs> so I often think about that when I see somebody behaving foolishly in public. I'm just like, my name is Lubert Das. <laughs> All right. Well, I've, I've, I don't know about you, Joe, but I've been fortunate enough to avoid kidney stones thus far in my life. Have you ever had a kidney stone? No, I have not. Okay. Well, uh, basically what we're, we're talking about here are hard deposits made of minerals and salts that, form, that can form inside your kidneys. And they often form when the urine becomes concentrated, uh, allowing the minerals to crystallize and stick together. Uh, if, they, if they form, then your body tries to pass them, which can be painful. In some cases, doctors can simply give you a painkiller and instruct you to drink a lot of water to help pass it. Uh, but in other cases, especially if it becomes lodged in your urinary tract, uh, surgery may be required to remove Ugh, it. Man, yeah. that's just I'm, – I'm shivering over here. So there's no uh, you know, definite single cause for kidney stones, uh, but dehydration can certainly lead to their formation. Again, the concentration of urine, remember. Now, as the authors of this paper point out, some 300,000 U.S. patients seek emergency care for kidney stones uh, each year. And in addition to hydration, saying, you know, drink a lot of water uh, or the administration of fluids, uh, two other um, things that are uh, sometimes used are uh, positional inversion and uh, external application of force. Whoa. So what does that mean? Getting upside down or something? Or? Getting upside down, getting thrown around a little bit. And so I think everyone can can re- can realize here why, why we're getting into the do- domain of roller coasters. Uh, they point out that th- there have been uh, reports of uh, spontaneous kidney stone passage associated with both uh, roller coaster riding and bungee cord jumping. Oh, so somebody had kidney stones mm-hmm. and then they're like, time to go bungee jumping. Well, that was a little unclear whether it was a situation where if the individual knew they had the stones, I assume <laughs> they knew, um, given the discomfort that is generally reported. But Attach they, the bungee cord. My <laughs> name is Lubert Das. <laughs> the problem, though, is they said these, these uh, accounts, they tend to be reported in like non-peer-reviewed uh, uh, publications, mm. or it's just kind of like word of mouth. And uh, in particular, 
they noted that they had uh, heard numerous stories about people passing kidney stones after riding Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, a roller coaster at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom <laughs> theme park in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they they had turned uh, apparently heard various accounts of folks spontaneously passing the stones after riding it. <laughs> Have you ridden this roller coaster, Joe? No, I'm not really a roller coaster person, and I haven't. Wait, which one is that? Magic Kingdom? Oh, yeah, I've been to that one, but not since I was a kid. I was okay. probably too short to ride it anyway when I was there. It's like it has like a mining theme. Okay, um, I rode it just like what last year, the year before. Uh, I I rode it with my son mm-hmm. and my niece. And it's a fun roller coaster. I, I'm not really a roller coaster person myself, but I enjoyed some of the roller coasters at Disney because they're just like really phenomenal productions, especially the one that has a Yeti in it. Did you get um, the black lung? The black lung. The black lung was not a, a featured add-on uh, when I was uh, at Disney. But but this this is a roller coaster that does move you around. It's it's not like one of those just crazy, um, you know, one of those just insane rides that mm-hmm. uh, that some people go for. It doesn't look like it's uh, designed to get a confession out of you, <laughs> but it still it takes you for a ride. Uh-huh. So they wanted to test it out. They said, "Well, let's go there and let's see what happens to some kidney stones." Brilliant. I'm in. <laughs> now, they didn't take individuals with kidney stones on board, so there, weren't, oh, okay. there were no human test subjects here. What they did is they took three kidney stones of different sizes, suspended them in urine, and then placed them in uh, adult uh, uteroscopy and rhinoscopy simulators. And then they took them for 20 rides, so 60 rides in total. Okay, so they've, what, basically got them in some kind of fake kidney kind of contraption? Yeah, there were some pictures of these in the paper, and they... Uh, one of them looks kind of like a prop from a David Cronenberg film, mm-hmm. and the other looks like a um, it's like a crystal tree looking uh, you know device. It looks like it kind of looks like an award you might win for uh, you know achievements in kidney stone removal or something. So, do you know if they had to have any kind of arrangements to negotiate these organs onto the roller coaster? Like, are they arguing with the ticket guy or what? They pointed out specifically that uh, that care was taken to preserve guest empl- uh, entertainment enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I believe they had them inside of something hidden out of the way because they okay. also mentioned specifically, uh, and this is this is an exact quote. Uh, bovine and porcine renal models were deemed impractical as patient surrogates for study owing to ambient temperature and the inappropriate display of such material in a family-friendly amusement park. Okay, so you couldn't bring, like, pig kidneys onto the roller coaster because that might upset some people. Yeah, Disney was apparently, they were gracious hosts uh, Uh for this study, but they knew there were limits. It's kind of a delicate situation when you're carrying out your... um, kidney stone research on an, uh, an active uh, amusement park ride. But then again, you might have some science-loving kids there. They get their, you know, their picture hugging Mickey, and then they get their picture hugging some pig kidneys. <laughs> uh, Missed opportunity. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe, maybe for the next study. So what did they find out? Well, they found that it did seem to prove helpful, but mostly uh, only if you're seated toward the back of the coaster. So for front coaster passage rate, we're talking 4 of 24. Rear coaster passage rate, 23 of 36. Hey, that's not bad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like like everybody knows. You sit at the back of the coaster, you're going to get a bumpier, uh, more hellacious ride. Right. And if you have a hellacious kidney stone, well, uh, it's going. this is going to help uh, uh, knock it out of you just a little bit easier. So are the authors actually, like, suggesting people do this? Somehow I, I would suspect <laughs> not. No, no, I don't think anybody is, is, is saying – 
go to the, to Disney World instead of a doctor for right. a kidney stone. Uh, like for one thing, the lines for uh, Big Thunder <laughs> Mountain Railroad are pretty long, and I cannot imagine standing in them with any kind of like ab- abdominal discomfort going on, uh-huh. uh, or like, you know, an, an enhanced uh, necessity to urinate or anything. Uh, Man, but, I wonder uh, how long they had to stand in lines total to, in order to run the ride the 36 times or whatever that they were trying to pass the stones. Maybe there's some sort of a research-based fast pass you can get. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know that they mentioned that specifically in the study. <laughs> and then they also point out that there are, other, you know, there are limitations on the study, obviously. They, they didn't get to use uh, human patients. They used these models. Mm-hmm. But the study is important because kidney stones uh, are a legitimate health concern. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, yeah, even though we're, we're not talking about installing roller coasters uh, in hospitals, it, it does make one think what kind, of, what kind of an apparatus might be appropriate, right? Yeah, I mean, you could probably just figure out what part of the roller coaster ride specifically is the most useful, like what, you know, kinds of G-forces on the body and how that's applied and maybe just like make a chair that does it to you or something. Yeah, that's. I think that's the most logical application that I can imagine short of just actually having a roller coaster at the hospital. That also sounds kind of fun. Um, but anyway, that's why it's important, why it's funny. Obviously, it's science plus roller coasters. Anytime that combo was coming at you, it's going to uh, elect a few giggles, I think. That's a pretty good one. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have more Ignobels. All right, we're back. Now, the next one I think we should go to is the 2018 Nutrition Prize. And I know what you have all been thinking lately. You've been wondering can I lose weight by converting to a diet consisting only of human flesh? (laughs) The Hannibal diet is the new fad. Oh, no. Hannibal eats all kinds of other stuff. He would have to go like super paleo Hannibal. Well, he supplements his diet with human flesh. And that's how he stays so trim. Putting like a blueberry reduction balsamic glaze on this human flesh. Yeah, you know how unhealthy all of that would be if he wasn't throwing in some some lean uh, human flesh to just really balance everything out? All right. So this prize went to a researcher named James Cole for a paper published in Scientific Reports in 2017 called Assessing the Caloric Significance of Episodes of Human Cannibalism in the Paleolithic. Who attended the ceremony is James Cole, the author of this paper. So let's say you come across some evidence of humans eating other humans. It's reasonable to ask why are they doing this, right? In fact, this is often a question we have to ask about the remains of Stone Age humans because there are Paleolithic sites, Stone Age sites, that show clear evidence of human cannibalism at least as far back as our hominin relatives in the early Pleistocene, roughly 2.5 million years ago. So I guess before we get to the why, actually, a totally reasonable question you might have is if we're talking about hominin remains – that are thousands or even millions of years old, how can we tell cannibalism took place? It's just bones, right? Like what would the evidence be? Well, there are a couple of lines of evidence for cannibalism in the Pleistocene. Uh, One is anthropogenic modification of human remains. That's the like polite science-y way to talk about signs of butchering on human Mm -hmm. bones. So clear human-made changes to the bones of other humans. And these would be the same kinds of physical marks that we would find left on the bones of what are considered prey animals, signs of butchering, cooking, and eating. And examples would include 
cuts and chop marks in the bone from the butchering process like they might have been made with sharp stone tools, uh, breaks in the long bones, which would be presumably to access the marrow because that's the good part, evidence of cooking such as burned ends of a bone, human tooth marks on a bone, quote, lack of a cranial base to get at the brain on otherwise complete or near complete skeletons. Well, you got to suck the the head. I mean, anybody who's it's like a crayfish, crawl, cray, yeah. crawdads, a crayfish, uh, or uh, swamp bugs, if you want to call them. Uh, sorry, that. I'm sorry I said crayfish. Crawdads is the correct terminology. <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm going to go with crawdads. I have to admit I'm a little hazy. Uh, I, I do like swamp bugs uh, uh-huh. as, a, as, a, uh, as a kind of Cajun description, though. Right. Well, they, they're, they are quite bug-like, but they have delicious heads. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people just eat the tails. But people who know what's up also take the – what would you call it? I guess it's the thoracic cavity with the head mm-hmm. there and they just suck all the fat and juices and guts out of it. Uh, get those good tasty brains. And uh, so, yeah, there apparently there's some nutritional value in the brains that uh, some people might want to get. But there's also the idea that sometimes modification of the skull is done for some kind of other purpose, not just purely accessing nutrition, but like the creation of skull cups, making skulls into like eating or drinking vessels. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we've seen uh, more recent examples of this uh, in Tibetan customs, for instance. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that Cole mentions is uh, like a physical sign of cannibalism in ancient human remains or ancient hominin remains, not necessarily just Homo sapiens, uh, is, quote, the virtual absence of vertebrae due to crushing or boiling to get at bone marrow and grease. So, like, maybe you want to get that good spinal cord, you're going to have the vertebrae kind of coming apart. Uh, it's, it's like eating crab legs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, tool scrapes on the bones, which there could be scrapes on the bones related to butchering and accessing of meat, but there could also be scrapes on the bones for ritualistic or symbolic purposes. On top of that, there's some interesting genetic evidence of cannibalism in the uh, in the world in the prehistoric world. For example, there are diseases known as transmissible spongiform encephalopathies or TSEs, and examples of this would include Kuru or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and these are prion diseases or prion diseases that uh, cause degeneration of brain tissue and can be acquired often through cannibalism. One you might have heard of is Kuru. The members of the 4A linguistic group in Papua New Guinea have often been exposed to the TSE known as Kuru because of their practice of ritual endocannibalism for religious and cultural reasons. Yeah, and a lot of these ideas, uh, you know, they, they, they have to do with the passing on of, uh, of a departed uh, individual, a departed family member like and, and you consume some of their flesh and it's like their spirit lives on through you, that sort of thing. Exactly. Uh, and so an interesting thing is that there are worldwide patterns of genes we find that seem to indicate our species' genetic history sometimes favored in the past adaptation for resistance to TSEs. For example, uh, Mead et al. in a 2003 paper in Science uh, wrote, quote, heterozygosity for a common polymorphism in the human prion protein gene, PRNP, confers relative resistance to prion diseases. And then later they write, worldwide PRNP haplotype diversity encoding allele frequencies suggest the strong balancing selection at this locus occurred during the evolution of modern humans. So the authors argued that the patterns of genetic resistance to TSEs that we see in human populations indicate that something in our evolutionary history favored people who could cannibalize, who could eat human flesh without contracting fatal encephalopathies. 
This is a fun paper thus far. This really, it's, it's kind of a nice uh, follow-up to our ghoul episode, uh, mm-hmm. the Delta in part with, uh, you know, with the question, uh, you know, what about uh, the consumption of human corpses in, 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 our, in our past and in our, in our biology? It is an interesting subject. In fact, I'm not even really getting deep into the paper yet. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just setting it up. So it's <laughs> going to really get going in a second, okay? Like, first of all, there are disputes about whether individual sites actually do show evidence of cannibalism rather than some other form of manipulation of the dead. Like, you could have had maybe ritualistic defleshing of the dead without eating. Maybe for some reason they wanted to get the meat off the bones of a dead person person, but not not eat it. Well, like one example that comes to mind to come back to Tibet, uh, the practice of sky burial. Yes. The breaking down of a corpse so that the flesh may be consumed by um, sacred animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if, if you were just looking at the forensic evidence of that, you might say, oh, well, clearly this person was butchered and eaten because essentially it is butchery, mm-hmm. but it is not for cannibalism. Uh, but w- whether or not it happened in individual cases, it at least does appear to be something that happened enough for us to have records of it. Sometimes prehistoric humans and other related hominins were eating each other, at least often enough for us to have some archaeological record of it. So back to the original question, the question of why. Why were these ancient humans and other hominin relatives eating each other? Cole notes that there are multiple documented motivations for human cannibalism. So several of these would be like survival cannibalism. That's when you're not normally a cannibal, but you're about to starve to death, so you eat somebody. Right. Uh, this is essentially with the touch of the Wendigo uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, the, the folklore of native peoples in the Americas gets at the idea that if forced to – Uh, You may have to enact cannibalism. Right. And then there is, of course, psychotic or criminal cannibalism and aggressive cannibalism. These would be various types of cannibalism that is some sort of like aggressive symbology, like Mm. warfare cannibalism. You, You know, not only defeat your enemies, but you defeat them so totally that you feel you should eat them. There is, of course, as we've pointed out, spiritual or ritual cannibalism. And then there is gastronomic or dietary cannibalism, nutritional cannibalism, basically. Like this is part of your diet and you're eating it because it's meat. Yeah. It's kind of like the the old school cannibalism. This is more in line with the biological cannibalism that we've discussed in the show before, right? Yeah, of other organisms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's that. And then also he points out a a good category that often gets left out, medicinal cannibalism, right? Sometimes you might want to eat another human because you think it does something. Mm. Kind of a vampiric uh, cannibalism. It could eat the flesh of the young and you shall feel better, wise one. Yeah, something like that. So a couple of other relevant categories uh, just to mention is that there's the idea of exocannibalism versus endocannibalism. Exocannibalism would be humans eating humans who were not part of the in-group. For example, mm-hmm. eating rivals killed in war. And then there's endocannibalism, which is eating humans who were part of your in-group. Uh, for example, ritualistically eating one's own family members for religious reasons. Right. And you can sort of divide these up too as in, into categories of nice cannibalism and uh, mean cannibalism. (laughs) Right. Uh, So the majorities of studies of Paleolithic cannibal sites have tended to posit, Cole says, a nutritional motivation for the cannibalism, while a smaller number have posited religious rituals or aggressive cannibalism associated with warfare. And Cole points out that there are some confusing things about the ways these motivational labels are applied to instances of cannibalism from prehistoric times. And so to help refine the discussion about the type of cannibalism and the role of raw nutrition in motivating prehistoric cannibalistic episodes, Cole said basically, hey, wouldn't it help to know exactly how nutritious a paleolithic human was? 
that could sort of help us better understand whether these are purely nutrition-seeking events or whether there's some other kind of significance to them, right? So ultimately, the goal of this paper was to construct an informed estimate on the nutritional value of a human. (laughs) Uh, First question, has anybody ever done that before? Cole says, yes, it has been done, though it was just sort of in a short letter to American anthropologists in the year 1970, and their methodology for how they came up with their number was not clear. But in 1970, Stanley M. Garn and Walter D. Block wrote, quote, the limited nutritional value of cannibalism in this short letter to American anthropologists. Garn and Block claimed that an adult male weighing 50 kilograms or about 110 pounds, uh, which is a reasonable estimate of the body mass of a Stone Age human, would yield about 30 kilograms or 66 pounds of edible skeletal muscle mass. And nutritionally, that breaks down to about 4.5 kilograms of protein and about 18,000 calories. So based on this, Garn and Block said that if human is your only source of protein, that's the only meat you're eating and the only real protein you're getting, a group of 60 people would need to eat a person every day in order to get enough protein to have a healthy diet. Uh, And if it were rationed out so you got less out to a diet of like one human per week shared between 60 people, the group would not be getting nearly enough protein. So based on this, Garn and Block conclude, quote, the nutritional value of cannibalism may therefore be viewed as questionable unless a group is in a position to consume its own number in a year. So basically, you'd have to be eating a lot of humans. All right. Well, you know, I really want to see these numbers broken down and compared uh, to the, uh, the the chainsaw family and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> right. Uh, because, Is that nutritional cannibalism? Well, I don't I – mean, I feel like it's a mix of nutritional and commercial because uh, there are four individuals in the family and obviously they need the protein – uh, commercial. This is not taken into account at all. I know because they're, they're running the barbecue restaurant on the side. Yeah. And uh, as we find out in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, they're, they're winning awards at regional uh, barbecue competitions. This is prestige cannibalism. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so to, to follow up on Garn and Block, Cole asks, OK, is their estimate correct? They don't say how they got to these numbers. And to figure that out, Cole did a review of the existing literature on the chemical composition of the human body, relying on three studies from the Journal of Biological Chemistry in the middle of the 20th century, which were drawn from analysis of four adult human males. So how much nutrition is there per kilogram of muscle mass on a human? Well, this data yielded an average of 19,951 calories per 24.9 kilograms of muscle mass. So Garn and Block weren't all that far off by estimating 18,000 calories in 30 kilograms of muscle. And so there's – and then uh, Cole comes up with some estimates of the nutritional value of the protein and fat – on a human, I think this is supposed to be for a roughly 145-pound human male. Uh, so total body, there would be about 143,771 calories. And it's got to break down by body parts, right? So the, like the body parts reasonably expected to be consumed based on ethnographic studies of cannibalism. So not eating stuff like teeth and nerve tissue. That would leave you with about 125,822 calories. And there is this one 
wonderful table in the paper where the body is broken down into parts based on their nutritional value. So the heart is about 650 calories. The brain, spinal cord, and nerve trunks, about 2,700 calories. The forearms, 1,664 calories. I'm assuming this is not for a Popeye, but just like regular forearms. Now that heart, that's that's some that's some good calories there, but that's some tough eating. That's some tough tissue. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. you've got to make a stew with that. Well, yeah. So part of the one of the caveats, and I'll get into the caveats in a minute here, but one of the caveats is that this is just for raw meat. It, it can't take into account how the nutritional value of these things change when cooked. But we have discussed before how cooking is thought to significantly increase the caloric value or nutritional value of a lot of foods. Things that cannot or otherwise be digested can be digested after being cooked. Exactly. So I wanted to come up with some comparisons, uh, not analyzing protein ratios or anything, but just purely in terms of raw calories. Uh, I worked out that on this number with the with the edible part being about 125,822 calories, human body's worth about 132 Wendy's Baconators. Now, what's a Baconator? A Baconator is a Wendy's sandwich that has a bunch of bacon and cheese on it. Okay, so it's like a bacon cheeseburger? Yes, basically. Okay. It's like the, – I think they make a big deal about how like we don't put any lettuce on this. It's, <laughs> you know, this is just bacon and cheese. It's one of those sandwiches that uses kind of uh, crass masculinity marketing. Okay, it's, it's like, kind of like the, the, the – Sandwich for men. Like the double down sort of the that, whole – That kind of thing, okay. yeah. So it's like a, a, that, a human body is worth about 132 Wendy's Baconators <laughs> or I've got another one here. About 293 slices of Pizza Hut Meat Lover's Large Original Stuffed Crust Pizza. All right. Well, that's that's quite a lot of pizza. Well, I mean, a human body is somewhat nutritious. Uh, though I did, I want to say I arrived at those numbers using those restaurants' online nutrition calculators. Those numbers could be BS. They could be massively <laughs> undershooting the calories in an average Baconator. Now, obviously, there are going to be some caveats in this type of – because this is just coming up with some very broad estimates. Right. So some major caveats Cole mentions. He says uh, the data he used to arrive at his estimates were only based on adult males in the 20th century. And he's got a great sense of humor when he writes this. So, quote, Ideally, nutritional templates for females in a range of ages would be constructed to represent the full nutritional potential of hominin social groups. However, data for females and subadults are not available within the published literature, and the collection of primary data of this nature was outside the ethical and legal scope of this study. Ha. Uh, he also says uh, that da the data only pertains to basically anatomically modern humans. It's not known how different the nutritional value of other species like Neanderthals or Homo erectus might be. Also, the average values here are drawn from a small sample size. Better estimates could be drawn if you had more humans to measure the nutritional value of. Also, these values are of the nutritional value of raw meat. Like we said, cooking might change things. So after that, Cole also does some estimates of the nutritional yield for body mass at uh, different Paleolithic cannibalism sites found by archaeologists. So you've got a Stone Age cannibalism site and you look at, well, OK, what were the different people here that apparently got eaten? And so he like tries to add up how much body mass calorie value was, was being served at this site. Uh, and so how – so the question he asks is how do humans stack up against other meat sources of the Paleolithic? Quote, when compared to most other fauna, human skeletal muscle has a nutritional value broadly in line with those that match our size and weight but produce significantly fewer calories than most of the larger fauna such as mammoth, woolly rhino or deer species known to have been regularly consumed by past hominins. So there are better meals around. 
Yeah, exactly. So while you could get decent nutrition from a human body, Cole argues that it would be much more worthwhile to simply hunt the same large fauna of the time that you would normally be hunting. Mammoth, rhinoceros, aurochs, bison, cow, bear, horse, giant deer, all this stuff. So hunting and killing a human for meat has a kind of wonky risk-to-reward ratio because, you know, he points out that humans are crafty and sometimes they can fight back in clever and dangerous ways. Is it really worth hunting humans provided that they're going to give you relatively low amounts of nutrition compared to these big, fat, bulky animals that are also probably easier to hunt. Right. So Cole asks, were hominins actively hunted by members of their own species in prehistoric times? Uh, He says, quote, active hunting raises the interesting question of whether the relatively low calorific return for hominins would justify the energy expenditure in hunting an individual or group if the motivation was driven was driven purely by balancing energy quotients. It is suggested here that this would not be the case when a single large fauna individual returns many more calories without the difficulties of hunting groups of hominins that were as intelligent and resourceful as the hunters in their ability to fight back and evade pursuit. So now he he said, you know, we have these instances of what looks like prehistoric cannibalism among hominins, but it just doesn't seem like that is a very smart strategy for getting meat generally. So what what's going on here? Why do we see this cannibalism? And he hypothesizes, well, maybe there are cases of occasional opportunistic nutritional cannibalism. For example, we're pretty hungry and a member of our group just died of natural causes. Right. Or or certainly to go back to the warfare analogies, like you get into some sort of a, a, uh, an altercation with a rival group, yeah. perhaps over uh, access, access to some to fauna, to yeah. fauna. And then, well, I need meat. I was hunting this thing, uh, but I just uh, bashed the skull in of this guy who, granted, looks a lot like me, but mm-hmm. is made of meat. Right. Uh, So, yeah, it could be sort of occasional opportunistic cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then Cole also says that, quote, the motivations for cannibalistic episodes lay within complex cultural systems involving both intra and intergroup dynamics and competition. Essentially, he's saying he he thinks a very likely explanation for a lot of these cannibalistic episodes has something to do with prehistoric culture which we don't know a lot about, but it could involve uh, religious uses, ritual uses, medicinal uses, things people believed there to be reasons to eat other humans that went beyond just the nutritional value. I mean, it is very difficult to put ourselves, to attempt to put ourselves in the mindset of of, of such cultures. Yeah, and and we don't know what they were. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. one of the fascinating things. They're interesting little tidbits, but they didn't leave written records. So we don't really have descriptions of what they believed and what their relationships were like. And, you know, just all the things, the kind of, everyday texture of society that we know so well in our own world, it's it's mostly opaque to us what it was like this far back in the past. Well, you know, even the Chainsaw family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> they, uh, they have their own sort of uh, culture and system of beliefs that seems to have risen up out of this, uh, uh, the, the, this Texan uh, uh, abattoir culture uh-huh. and, uh, and their family history with the business. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, you know, there are some intentionally or, or perhaps accidentally uh, kind of ingenious ideas about like the spiritual nature of cannibalism kind of embedded in that uh, original motion picture. Yeah. 
Do you have an example? Well, there's a sense of there's a sense of ritual to the cannibalism yeah. that's going on, at least within the own within the family, and maybe you could apply that to the barbecue restaurant as well. But like, there's that whole scene with the uh, you know seated at the table, and granted, uh, you know they're they're probably uh, drawing a little bit from uh, Judeo Christian traditions there, but you know there's this something sacred going on with the, the family dinner and uh, allowing uh, grandpa, uh, the greatest killer that had ever, ever lived, to attempt to uh, to kill the victim uh, so that he can uh, uh, you know, drink of her blood, eat of her flesh, and grow stronger. Uh, and then all these other sort of elements of like the, the little bone wind chimes and constructions that have been created that seem – it's almost like there are people that are so cut off from the rest of, of modern society that they're kind of uh, reinventing uh, primordial religious concepts. That is fascinating. I had never thought of it that way. Like all they do – like if, if everything that they do is concerned with meat and the importance of meat and the preparation of meat mm-hmm. um, and then what kind of ideas – come out of that. It, it's, it's not unlike what we might try and imagine for uh, uh, prehistoric uh, peoples. You know, if your whole life is, of course, about the hunt, then various ideas spring out of that. Mm-hmm. If your whole life is about, uh, about the importance of meat and blood, uh, then you know, it, it, who knows exactly how they view the importance of our own flesh and what kind of powers or or, 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 I mean, we, we tend to put a horror show interpretation on it. And obviously I'm drawing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. But, I mean, perhaps in a way it was beautiful. Perhaps it was like I have killed this individual in battle and I must eat them. Like that is mm-hmm. the, the only – like that it's is how the, you show respect yeah, for a worthy adversary yeah, or something. I mean, we're tempted to want to construct some sort of brutal like I have killed my enemy and now I must feast on their brains kind of thing. But it, it maybe in its own way it was sacred. Well, I think it's also possible that we frequently underestimate the degree to which a lot of the strange features of our culture that don't seem strange to us because they're our culture mm-hmm. um, are just – are in traceable ways downstream of economics, which are ultimately reducible to chemical energy economics, you know, yeah. acquiring food to eat. Uh, you, you can trace a lot of culture back to getting food and surviving. Absolutely. So to bring it back to the study, another thing you can imagine is how perhaps certain practices that were originally just opportunistic nutritional practices, maybe opportunistic cannibalism when someone died and you didn't want to waste the meat so you ate them, uh, it's possible that could have turned into religious beliefs and rituals. Exactly. And that's not even taking into effect like any – you know, sort of abnormal um, uh, psychological effects that might have taken place in, in, in certain individuals and therefore influenced the overall shape of the culture, you know? Yeah. Like if one individual claimed uh, and, or even believed that, say, they consumed the flesh of their departed father and then heard their father's voice, yeah. then that could have enormous effects, you know? I mean, we're talking about the, the spread of, of religion. Yeah. This is always interesting territory. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, not the last time we will visit the uh, potential religious beliefs and rituals of prehistoric hominins. But we're going to go ahead and take a break now. And we're going to leave cannibalism for now. But when we come back, we're going to look at just a couple of uh, more Ig Nobel Prize winners uh, briefly before closing out part one uh, of our Ig Nobel Prize series for this year. All right. And we're back. Robert, do you have a, a shorter look you wanted to take at something? Oh, sure. Why don't we talk about uh, the chemistry prize? Okay. Let's do some chemistry. This is from uh, Romeo et al. 
and uh, they were honored for measuring the degree to which human saliva is a good cleaning agent for dirty surfaces. Uh, the, the paper was uh, titled, Human Saliva is a Cleaning Agent for Dirty Surfaces, and it was uh, published in Studies in Conservation back in 1990. And, uh, and the, the winners delivered their acceptance speech via recorded video. So with their original title, Should I Spit on It? And that got rejected. That would make it sound a little bit... Basically, bit. yeah, but we can all relate to this, right? I mean, have you ever used your own saliva to clean off, say, a smart sc- a smartphone screen? Or uh, I know in my case, I've used it on a kid's face plenty of times. I use my saliva as dishwashing detergent. So I don't <laughs> know why people buy those pods. You just spit in the dishwasher a lot and then get it going. It does a great job. <laughs> well, I, uh, I nobody's pushing it that that, that far. But the, there does seem to be something to the cleansing power of spit. Uh, at least to you know a limited degree, uh, and this is exactly what the the paper in question looked into. Uh, they used quantitative tests and uh, chromatographic techniques to isolate alpha amylase uh, as the key cleaning property in human saliva. Now you're probably wondering, well, what is an amylase? Is it some sort of a microbe? Uh, what what is it? Well, an amylase is a member of a class of enzymes that splits a starch compound via the addition of a water molecule. Okay. Uh, now, do we, we divide them into alphas and betas because they differ in the exact way that they attack the bonds of a starch molecule. But alpha amylase is found throughout the biological world, specifically in the digestive systems of humans and other animals. The one in the salivary glands is called uh, tylin. That begins with a P, P-T-Y-A-L-I-N. So why is it important? Well, it concerns human biology. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're humans. We're always interested in that. It also concerns hygiene. And it's funny because it involves spit, and it involves the idea of cleaning something with spit, something that on on a basic level, I feel like we all do this. We all have probably had a situation where we use spit to quote-unquote clean something, and yet at the same time, spit is considered dirty. Uh, mm-hmm. Like someone spitting at you is gross. Seeing someone spit in the street is disgusting. Well, yeah. I mean, you can see some of the thing. like I can see why this would be because the role of saliva in the mouth is somewhat the same as the role of average uh, cleaning liquids or detergents, right? So it, it is a detergent, meaning that it's like a wetting and lubrication agent that helps mm-hmm. things move around and wash off. And then it's also a somewhat uh, a digesting agent, like it breaks some things down and tenderizes some things. Yeah, it is the, our mouth, we have to remember, is the first stage of the uh, digestion. You know, we masticate the food. We get it all cut up. We get it nice and wet and soaked. And then our tongue uh, helps to form it at the back of our throat into a bolus that Uh is going to pass down our throat. It's preparing a package for shipment uh, to uh, the the rest of the digestive system. There's nothing more appetizing than thinking about the lubrication of a bolus going down your throat. Right. And then, you know, ultimately, that's what a a French kiss is. A French kiss (laughs) are two individuals deciding to to link uh, the initial stages of their digestive system and... (laughs) And to uh, (laughs) manipulate each other's, um, uh, you know, um, oral manipulation uh, limb. It's a beautiful moment. I just got a brilliant idea for an episode in the future. It should just be called Robert and Joe Ruin Kissing. And we just like – we just destroy kissing. We just take it to the point where nobody who listens will ever do it again. All right. Well, coming this Valentine's Day to a Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode near you. 
Well, I have another one here. This is another short one I'm, we're not going to spend much time on to kind of close out the episode. But their medical education prize. Uh, this one uh, went to uh, Akira uh, Horouchi for the medical report, Colonoscopy in the Sitting Position, Lessons Learned from Self-Colonoscopy. Self-Colonoscopy? Yes. Now, Genius. I'm just going to read the abstract on this one, okay? <laughs> okay, uh, just read it. Colonoscopy is typically done in the supine position. <laughs> with the patient's position varied as needed to assist instrument insertion. We found that a newly developed small-caliber variable stiffness uh, colonoscope uh, designed for colonoscopy in pediatric patients was especially useful in patients with difficult colonoscopy. The outside diameter is 10.3 millimeters, and the working length, the field of view, and the range of the tip flexion are similar to those of standard uh, colonoscopes. So, I mean, I, I don't have much to say about this one. It kind of calls back to our – we did an entire episode on ev- on the evolution of the anus. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're shy about uh, discussing uh, this part of the human anatomy. But I think this is one of those studies that basically they honored it because of the whole uh, uh, self-colonoscopy uh, aspect of the title. I suspect that is what set them off. Yeah, it yeah. was the self-colonoscopy. Though at the same time, it's important because this is a, an, a valid and important diagnostic method sure. for, uh, for, for human health. Oh, yeah. Colonoscopies are important. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and pinch off this particular episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But we're coming back in, uh, in the next episode, and we're going to discuss the remaining Ig Nobel Prize winners, uh, some of them in more detail, uh, certainly, than we, uh, than we spent with the colonoscopy uh, study. There's some really good ones in the next episode. Indeed. Including, more, including Morning Wood. So come back for that. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find a link to our Tee Public store. It's, uh, there's a link for our store right at the top of the page, and that'll give you the opportunity to buy something with our logo on it, like a shirt or a sticker, a tote bag, a throw pillow. They have all sorts of options there. It's a, it's a cool way to support the show uh, and uh, we appreciate it if you do and if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime just simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so big thanks as always to our excellent audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison if you would like to send us an email to give us feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.